Today I have Bouncer Smith, a legendary offshore captain from Miami, Florida. His awards and accolades are lengthy, highlighted by a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Billfish Foundation, and was inducted into the IGFA's Captain and Crew Hall of Fame. I've known Bouncer for years and have always cherished being in his presence. Here he is, Bouncer Smith. We broke everything. We broke lines. We broke hooks. We broke rods. We broke our minds. We broke marriages. We broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls, and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow, and he turned around the other way, and I shot him going through the other way. So I double lunged them both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. <laughs> There's something fishy going on here. Bouncer, it's great to have you on the show. Oh, Andy, it's great to be here, for sure. You know, um, one of the things I love about Bouncer Smith is every time I see you, wherever we are, you got a big old smile, and you are so <laughs> engaging and just so lovable, and you have so many accomplishments in your life, and it's just your aura is magnificent. Well, it's kind of like you. I mean, look how well-known you are in two circles. I mean come from breaking your legs all the time to breaking fly rods all the time. <laughs> right. We've both been blessed. I mean, we we need the luckiest of lives. All your life, you've either been on the best snow ski locations or the best fly fishing locations. All of my life, I've lived in one of the greatest destinations in the world. I mean, all kinds of fish, all kinds of entertainment, all kinds of restaurants, all kinds of people. Right. We live in Nirvana down here. It's just great. But going, but with that said, you are kind. You are wonderful. You want to tell your stories, and you're you're willing to share, and that's what I love about you. And that's what you know. I really, my son Nikki and I were captivated when we started this podcast. You're one of the first people that we're doing this podcast with. Is we got to get Bowser. So thank you for joining us. Well, it's certainly my honor. I mean, to be. Called into the presence of Andy Mills. As oh. as gets. <laughs> well, you're very kind. Thank and, you. And in years to come, it'll be your son will be in the same position. I so, think so. Sure. Yeah. Um, we are in the IGFA Hall of Fame. Um, this is the library, the Hemingway uh, Reading Room. Uh, so getting into the IGFA, a lot of people don't understand. This is the International Game Fish Association, uh, which is... Um, comprising of a couple of things. The vision was established in 1939, 80 years ago, by Mike Lerner, which has established the International Game Fish Association as the most widely recognized authority on game fish and angling-related matters in the world. And the mission, which is very important to fishermen around the world, 
The IGFA is a nonprofit organization committed to the conservation of game fish and the promotion of responsible ethical angling practices through science, education, rulemaking, record keeping, and recognition of outstanding accomplishment in the field of angling. This is the pantheon of fishing. And you are a member of the captain and crew, which is the Hall of Fame of what you do right yeah. here. This has got to make Huge you feel honor. so good. Oh, you better believe it. Uh, the, the IGFA has the IGFA Fishing Hall of Fame, which has been around for, I don't know, probably 25 years now. And um, Mark Soson repeatedly said they needed an uh, a branch or an honor recognizing people in the fishing industry, captains and mates and, and even boat builders to some extent, but the people who put the anglers on the fish every day. Right. And uh, Mark Soson was the driving force behind it, and uh, uh, Skip Smith picked it up. And between the two of them, we got the legendary captains and crews. And it was such an honor to be inducted because this is a committee that is all the creme de la creme of big game fishing. For sure. And to be honored by them is just as high as you can get. It's really yeah, it's unbelievable. Well, let's not forget, a lot of times as anglers, we say, I won. And you see it in golfing now. A lot of the, the golfers are saying, we won. We did this. It's all we. It's all encompassing the family, the wives, the children, the managers, the, the trainers, the caddies. It's a team. Oh, yeah. So I think for a long time, which is what we were, you're basically stating, is that these guys that catch all these fish, they were not going to catch them without you. It's, it's a team sport. Right. And to me, it looks like the uh, anglers, probably the quarterback, because he makes the pass. Sure. He you makes you the call the shots. Uh, I pick the place. Right. Uh, my co-captain, most of the times you have a mate on the boat, but I have a young man with me. I call him my co-captain because he's far beyond any mate that I've ever seen. But he decides which lure it's going to be or which live bait it's going to be or which fly it's going to be, uh, which rod's going to be picked up. is decided by that guy that's right there next to the angler, much like a caddy works with a golfer. Well, let me ask you this. Was there any, uh, ever an issue where... You, I'm sure it was very difficult for you initially to give him the power to decide the bait and, and the tactics because forever you were the guy. Well, actually, for 20 years, I didn't use a mate. Right. I, I did everything myself, but my boat got bigger, my body got older, and uh, I needed somebody to help me out. And yes, when uh, A.B. started working for me, A.B. was a rental boat cleaner and drove around a rental boat once in a while and and he, and had fished with his dad as a recreational fisherman his whole life but he had come up the same way I had through the ranks and he was now progressing to working on a fishing boat and had no experience with it to, to a great extent because I had him start with me when he was in high school and yeah I taught him how to tie the knots and how to hook the baits and how to fly the kite and everything else but he's been with me for 12 years. So where it just becomes, first he comes to me, what do you want on the long kite? Well, give me a herring. What do you want on the, well, give me another herring. Well, give me a goggle eye on that one and put this down there. And 
Now it's, uh, what do you want? Whatever you want. What right. you got? It's kind of like my son and I. You know, initially there's a, there are growing pains. Sure. And, and, uh, and boy, are those painful. <laughs> 15 we, to 18 years old. Oh, my God. You we each had a baseball bat in your back pocket. We have yelled at each other <laughs> so often and so much. But now he's better than I am. So there's, I, I don't have to fight. I just say fine. Time out, time out. He's better fly fisherman than you? Well, I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to say that publicly, but he is. I would say this year he's gotten a little bit better. But isn't that rewarding? It is. It's the greatest. You see these young men come up through the ranks, and it's so rewarding when you see all their accomplishments and their abilities. I, I, I look at Nick Stanzik in the Keys, and I look like uh, uh, on the Relentless down the Keys. I think his name is Connor Ross world-class fly fisherman now and uh, started out on a little kid in the cockpit with his dad. I mean, it's really great to see these young men coming up. But you know what's really fun is like you're talking about your mate and yourself and my son and, and me is you start thinking the same. You start saying the same thing. You can answer and, and, and make a question that they're already thinking. And Quite frankly, see, you don't even talk half the time. Right. It's one unit that's working and fishing you, together. You pop off a tippet. And whoever you're fishing with is pulling out another fly. Right. Uh, and the same fly you'd be picking out. I, I tell A.B., we're gonna, there's some dolphin offshore. I don't have to tell them change the wire leaders to monoliters on the spinners or, or do this or do that. He just do it. does it because yeah. he knows what he's doing. So. Well, you mentioned about, about your career and your life as a fisherman had, had it changed. You said, my body got bigger, my boats got bigger. Have you ever thought that, God, I want to catch a fish bigger than me. <laughs> you know, do they and make the, fish bigger <laughs> than me? <laughs> so the the question is, you know, hopefully it's not sensitive, but you've been a big man, and what's really admirable about you is you're a big man, but you have never given up that offshore chasing fish and fishing aggressively, fishing hard. I think you're a true testament to the will to win and the will to live large and fish large, because you're a large guy. And a lot no of people, about that. and a lot of people might have, might have, you know, taken a step back. But have you always been a big man? I have had weight issues my whole life, and there were a couple of times where I was lucky enough to get in the right program. And one time I weighed three hundred and fifty pounds, and I got down to one seventy. Did you feel skinny when you were three fifty? No, no, but it didn't slow me down. I mean, I would... No, I'm just making fun, I obviously. I worked but. by myself back then, and I would dance around the boat like there was nothing to it, throwing the cast net. I would drive the boat, mark a school of bait, run up to the bow, up on the forward deck, throw the cast net, run back, take the boat out of gear, and, and so forth. At 350 pounds, I'm thinking nothing of it. Right. Run up on the bow, throw the anchor, pull the anchor with 500 feet of rope 10 times a day. I think no nothing problem. of it. So when did, but when that, did that change? But that doesn't work anymore. When did, at, what, <laughs> at what point did that change? Well, what really started the change, and maybe I should blame it, but there's no really place to blame it. Uh, in the year 2000, Dusky came out with a 33-foot center console. The biggest thing they ever made was 25 and a half. And I ran one of those for 20 years. Well, they came out with a 33-footer. And the 33-footer was a whole lot more running around to get from the steering wheel to the rod to the other rod to this to that. And I just said, this is too much. So I hired my first uh, crew member. And then it was a lot of 
me giving directions instead of running around. So you stopped burning calories. You were not moving yeah. quite as much. Yeah. And then and then getting older, I mean I'm seventy one. Wow. And and I've never said it in public before, but when I was 30, I said, God, I don't think I'll make it to 40 because I'm so overweight. My son was born when I was 32, and I says, God, I just want to see my son graduate from high school. And he graduated from high school, and I said, God, I'd just like to see him graduate from college. And and every decade it's been, well, this is the last one. <laughs> you can tell A.B. Raymond, I tell him every week, He's going to own the business in two years. There's nothing left. But the body just keeps going. I mean, when God made me, he made a very efficient fuel consumer. I get, my body gets 500 miles to a gallon. You're lucky probably if you get five miles to a gallon. Right. My body, just everything that I eat turns to body mass. And, And I looked at... I looked at a Krispy Kreme sign on the side of I-95. You gained five pounds? Six. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations. But, I mean, I mean, this is a testament to your will and well, your passion a, to, to, do, to live the life that you've always wanted to live. It's a double-edged sword. I'm, I am honestly ashamed of my physique every day. But I'm also very proud of the fact that I can be an inspiration to other kids or male or female, that can't control their weight, that they can still do great things in life. I mean, I've never met my press agent, but he is absolutely phenomenal. What I've done in my life is beyond belief, and 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 I thank my lucky stars every day for... Connie Myra told me back in the early 70s, all the guys on the dock, the outdoor right for the Miami Herald, would call up and he would say, hey, I want to go fishing with my nephew next week. And these boats sold chairs. And if they sold four chairs, they made a profit. So Jim Hardy would call him and say, I'd like to take my nephew. So they wanted two chairs. They left the boat four chairs to sell. And everybody on the dock would tell him, take a hike. You want to go fishing, you pay for it. Connie Myra was a woman charter boat captain all the way back into the 60s. And if... And Jim Hardy would call her, or she, he would call the dock phone, and she would get a hold of the phone. By all means, Mr. Hardy, come on down. All these other captains were blowing him off. Every time Connie Myra took Jim Hardy fishing, she got a half a page in the Friday or the Sunday Miami Herald when everybody read the newspaper every day. Remember when people did that? Right. They actually read in paper? Book, in books, too. Yeah. <laughs> but but any rate... These guys are blowing him off, and not a one of them could afford to buy a half a page in the Miami Herald on a Friday or a Sunday. Right. And and she was getting it for free. I mean, giving up two chairs, she still made a profit on her charter. So, what a world! I took, but I took that, and I ran with it my whole career. An outdoor writer calls me up. You bet. Come on down. Let's go fishing. Somebody calls up and says, "Hey, I'm doing a story in a magazine. I need some in depth on something. How can I help?" Right. And, and and that's really so much of what's worked so good for me. I I worked with George Poveromo on a cover for Solar Sports Magazine. I started on radio uh, on a full-time basis in 1984. I started doing occasional radio spots 
1973. And, and I had a great rapport with all the outdoor writers. So when I went to Dusky Boats and I went to sat across the from Ralph Brown, I says, I want a new boat. I bought a used Dusky. I says, I want a new boat. I figured out everything I wanted on my boat. I pushed that across the table to him. He pushed the number back to me. It was like, make me an offer I can't refuse. And I've owned a Dusky ever since. And, and they're phenomenal boats. And, and I've had other major boat builders come to me and say, you're, what this industry needs is product loyalty. But if anything ever goes wrong, come see me. Yeah. Because, you know, product loyalty is very, very important. But when other companies come and say, hey, it's so great that you're doing that. So yeah. if you get something goes wrong there, come and see me. That's a huge honor. Yeah. And uh, Well, um, what you've done um, in this world is obviously huge. I mean, I, I'm a shallow water guy, but I always wanted to be in your boat. And we went fishing, I think, that one evening. Yeah. That was, the, you know, briefly. But it was, you know, we weren't doing what I normally do, but I wanted to be in your boat. Yeah. I wanted to be in Bouncer's presence. So anyway, speaking on behalf of the sport and the world, you know, thank you for what you've done. You've really given us a lot. And a lot of, like you said, a lot of inspiration um, through what you've had to overcome. Well, it's an honor, you know, like I said, it's, it's, for all of us. It's It's been a thrill and an honor for me, that's for sure. But uh, Was there anybody in your career when you were younger that really motivated you or inspired you to do this, or was it the sport and the fish itself? In, in the fact that, and I'll just relate this to, to my background, I would, you know, 30-some years ago, I was a skier. I'd never caught a saltwater fish, but Walker's K Chronicle brought me to the sport. And the fish of my choice became a tarpon. So it was kind of like flip and tarpon. Um, did you ever have anybody or, or any images in your head when you were a young kid that that's what you wanted to gravitate to? I can't put a name with the person. But first of all, my dad had four children, two girls and two boys. And every single weekend was one day for home and garden and one day for outdoor recreation. Outdoor recreation might have been shelling the beaches of Marco or Sanibel. It might have been snorkeling at Fowey Rocks Lighthouse. It might have been trout fishing at Flamingo. It might have been uh, head boats out of Miami, or uh, we were lucky enough that a couple of his co-workers had 21-foot kit boats, which were uh, Chris Craft and uh, Owens built them, and they had a single gray marine gas engine in them and they went six knots and and we would go out haul over inlet and go troll for dolphin with Japanese trolling feathers. But I started out there. So my dad was my biggest inspiration. But we went to Isla Morada, probably I was 15. I went down there with a bunch of school buddies. And we went into places like Bud and Mary's and stuff. And you saw these guys with a deep dark tan and raccoon eyes and and they were carrying around a fly rod and they were talking about how the fish were solid on Buchanan or the bonefish were really good in downtown Isla Mirada or this or that. God, that's what I'm going to be. And that was when I was in high school. That's all I dreamed of was being a flats guide in Isla Mirada. And I actually got to try it for a couple of years and, and it was really, really thrilling. But by then I was spoiled. I love tarpon. That's my very favorite fish. Even more so than sailfish? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, number one is tarpon. tarpon. But I also love sailfish. But I could do without the bonefish. I mean, bonefish are great. Don't they're let paying, me. They're paying the butt, no, aren't they? No, no, but they're, uh, I still but You think, want something that you're a big guy. You like big fish. Well, not only that, but uh, uh, bone fishing was a whole lot of hunting. And very. it was a lot to be said for bonefish. And I still take people bonefishing today on my 33-footer. So How do you do that? I got a couple of tricks up my sleeve. But my proudest moment in recent history. My nephew, who's always done all of his fishing with me, and my sister, his mother, of course, who loves to fish, he lives in Atlanta, Georgia. He comes down on business, and uh, I had taken my sister to Bimini in the summertime, and we were sitting at the dock in Bimini, and uh, I had my sister and my co-captain and his wife were on the boat, and we were cleaning up to go to a pool party, and my co-captain looks over the side, and there's a mackerel laying on the bottom has been filleted. And there's a school of bonefish picking on the mackerel carcass. And uh, he says, hey, there's a bunch of bonefish down there. And we had a bag of shrimp. I says, give my sister a rod of the shrimp and a split shot. She's never caught a bonefish. So my sister drops it down. The bonefish sucks it in. My sister catches a bonefish. So then his wife catches a bonefish, and by then the school says, hey, there's something wrong with this mackerel. We're <laughs> out of here. But, but my nephew comes down in September, and he's all jealous because his mother caught a bonefish, and he's never caught a bonefish. And he's tried for bonefish back when I had my flat skiff even, uh, when he was a little kid, but we never caught a bonefish. So I, I had a different mate for a Sunday, I told my nephew, Sunday afternoon is yours. Whatever you want to do, we'll do. He usually goes trout fishing because he loves to cast plugs for trout. And my sister loves trout fishing. But I, he came down to the boat, and I said, so you want to go bone fishing or trout fishing? He says, yes. That means he wants to do both. So I sent my mate up to the tackle shop. I says, go up and get a pound of frozen shrimp and a block of chum. The chum for the trout fishing and the shrimp for the bone fish. I left Miami Beach Marina in my 33-foot dusky, and I ran down to the north end to Key Biscayne. And how long ago was this? Just uh, two years ago, maybe. Yeah. But I run down to the north end of Key Biscayne, and I, I'm looking from three feet of water. I'm looking, and I says, there's a nice white spot right there. So you having bonefish a lot will really appreciate this. But I motor my 33-footer <laughs> all the way in as close as I can get, and I turn around, and I tell my mate to drop my 30-pound anchor and 30 <laughs> feet of chain, and I back in up three, to the, In three feet of water. No, now we're in two <laughs> feet of water. And I back up to the white hole, and I tell him, okay, tie it off. Now, mind you, this is two 300-horse engines running, anchors and chain and rope and people. And he ties off the rope, and I says, okay. Now, both these spinner rods have got a split shot and a little circle hook thread a shrimp on each one and cast them on that white hole and then cut some pieces, some shrimp up in little pieces and throw it out there. He baits the two rods. He casts them out. He cuts up the bait. The rod bend, doesn't throw the chum yet. The rod bends over and my nephew catches an eight-pound bonefish. And who said bonefishing is over <laughs> in the Keys in Biscayne Bay? <laughs> Leave it to Bouncer to reinvent a new way to bonefish. But can you imagine an eight-pounder with all these oh, bones yeah. oh, and Right off of a public swimming beach. Hey, Nikki, what are we doing on Monday? I think we're going to go bone fishing. <laughs> you know, it's um, 
Over the years, 52 years as a guide, what have, how have you seen your fishery change the most? You know, it's a lot of bad news and it's a lot of good news. Let's take snook, for example. When I was in high school, I hung out with, we actually formed our own little fishing club of about six guys. But to us, using bait for a snook was a sacrilege. It was all zero spooks, creek chub darters, and a little bit of fly fishing. And we fished all around North Miami Beach and North Miami. And we just loved catching big snook on surface plugs and plug rods and really, really made a big thing of it. And, and snook were abundant. And then all of a sudden into the 80s, I couldn't run a snook charter anymore. I wouldn't go snook fishing. There just were no snook in Dade County. What happened? Overfishing. They okay. were... They're they were being harvested? Well, that was against a lot of harvesting, but they were accidentally netting them along the beaches in Palm Beach and stuff, which if you if in all populations of whatever it is, there's a there's a center point, a, a, a slip in my but a, a window center or center of population. Okay. And in on the east coast of Florida, the snook epicenter is that Stewart, Fort Pierce, Jupiter, Jupiter area. Right. And if all the, if the snook population is declining, all the snook will be right there. If the snook's population is healthy, you'll see them spread down to Miami into the Upper Keys, and you'll see them spread all the, catching them up in Daytona Beach now when we've had warm years year after year. But that was the epicenter. And that, all the snook withdrew to that epicenter because they they had to gather to spawn. There weren't enough in Miami to spawn. There weren't enough before Lauderdale spawned. So they all would do to this epicenter. The tentacles got shorter. Yes. Well, thanks to good management, and snooker managed more than any other fish in Florida, as you well know, now the snook population has gotten better and better and better. And for the last 10 or 15 years, we run snook trips in the summertime when there's no harvest. We'll catch 20 snook, and every one will be over 35 inches long. Our people have a ball, and we use circle hooks, and we let them all go very generally. We'll, we'll let them take one fish out of the water for pictures. The rest of them stay in the water. My mate slips, or my co-captain slips the circle hook out, and we send them on their way. So... So that fishery is strong. Oh, it's That's real good. strong, yeah. What about your tarpon fishing? Cause it, and, and the now, shark. We, you and I spoke a while ago about the shark issues with tarpon. Now, now, that's the opposite end of the spectrum. Right. The tarpon fishing in 1980 was unbelievable. If you went to Hall Over Cut and fished off of, off of uh, Bell Harbor, there was a school of tarpon lined up in 12 feet of water, and there was a school of tarpon lined up in 20 feet of water. This is January, February. I would put out three live shrimp, and I would drift through this offshore school, and we'd catch a tarpon. And then we would drift into the inside school, and we'd catch another tarpon. We'd start, and we would catch tarpon all day long. During the day? During the day. And you went to government cut, and it was really, this is how pathetic it is. At the tips of the jetties, right. there would be a school of tarpon. On each side. On each side. But you never fished for those. The current was faster. They inevitably 
was harder to catch those fish. I was going to ask you but, about government cut, yes. But three-quarters of a mile offshore, there's a dog leg. And that dog leg would be so full of tarpon that in my flat skiff in the 1970s, 879, I could look over my so- over the side of my boat, and it was just tarpon, 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 tarpon. All you can see them up on the surface? From the surface as far down as you could see. Now, that, that dog leg, was that a sandbar, so the water depth changed? Well, no, the dog leg was dredged. Okay. For submarines or to protect a reef spot. I don't know why it was done, but government cut goes southeast for three-quarters of a mile in the ocean. And then it goes east for three quarters of a mile, and then you're at the entrance buoy. But in that dog leg, the channel was wider. Same depth, but right. it was wider. And that just seemed to be where the tarpon held. And you'd go out there and you'd give a guy a pompano jig with an extra strong hook on it, just a you know, round head right. and short bristles, half ounce, on a spinning rod or a plug rod, and you would just tell him, drop it down hit the bottom, wind it up five or six cranks, and then don't move the rod. Hold it. Just hold it. No bait. Just hold it. Just the jig. Just the jig. And in no time, you'd have a tarpon on. No kidding. And if you you had somebody that wasn't a very good fisherman, well, you couldn't hold the rod still, then you'd just put a shrimp on the jig, and and then then it would be sinking, and they have a tarpon on. But... In the early 80s, they put a lot of controls on netting kingfish. And the commercial fishermen went to uh, netting sharks up in the Daytona to Jacksonville area. And the head of the Florida Marine Fishery Commission at the time, I think it was McMaster's, lived on the beach up there. And he was a morning beach hiker or walker or runner or whatever. But he would run down the beach and he'd have to go around this tarpon and jump over that tarpon around this tarpon, all dead laying on the beach. Because the guys were netting sharks. Tar- were netting tarpon. Were, were killing tarpon by the hundreds. And after they, they, they stopped that process because they were also netting turtles. But the bottom line is, there has never been a school of tarpon in the turning in that dogleg of government cut sense. Since. Why were they netting sharks? To sell. You know, that's a big problem today. Sharks have been harvested commercially in Florida since back to World War I at least. Because shark liver was full of vitamins. And there were no synthetic vitamins. So they were killing the sharks to process the liver to get the nutrients out of the shark livers. And there was a little bit of market for the skins and a little bit of market for the meat. And then as time progressed, uh, they were marketed for their skins and then a little bit for the meat and a little bit for the liver. And... Just the charter boat industry, that you would have 60 charter boats on the coast of Florida that were promoting shark fishing every day, targeting hammerheads and tiger sharks and sandbar sharks and so on and so forth. 
And there were still occasional, there were sharks around. Everybody that commercial fished for sharks caught all the sharks they wanted. The charter boats, generally speaking, would run a, like out of the castaways motel or then haul over. They would run a four-hour, half-day trip, three hours. They would troll around or live bait or whatever it took to entertain everybody on the boat. And then by that point, they knew which person on the boat was most interested in having a shark mounted. And then at 11 o'clock, they would drop a shark bait down to the bottom. By 11.30, 11.40, they'd have the shark in the boat and be on the way back to the dock. Do you think a lot of that inspiration or desire to catch a shark came from the movie Jaws? Oh, no doubt about it. Yeah. Definitely. But the bottom line is, is that we had this shark commercial industry up until just a few years ago. And then they shut down almost all harvested sharks. So almost everything's protected. Yeah. You can't target a bull shark because you might catch another a tiger shark. And, and the tiger shark, you're not allowed to molest and, and so on and so forth. So shark harvest has gone to nothing. And now, I, from what I understand, you can't go out on the reef and catch anything without it getting shark bit. It doesn't matter what you target. Or you where go you to, are. You go to Palm Beach. A buddy of mine went to Palm Beach this time last year. Really good fisherman. He's fishing on a private boat. In the course of the day, they hooked three sailfish and a white marlin. All four fish were eaten by sharks. Guys hook wahoo, kingfish, blackfin tunas, bonitas. They have a very hard time landing anything that isn't shark. Bait. Right. And what about I saw in your... Uh on the internet, the the mako that ate one of your oh, the, sailfish. Well, makos have eaten sailfish forever. You ask Guy Harvey, he'll tell you. Right. You want to go find a mako, go find the biggest population of sailfish because there's going to be makos following them. Right. And we've always seen a periodical mako. But what was neat about that was, was that a guy had a top-of-the-line phone camera in his hand. He'd been videotaping the sailfish jumping. And then he had just put it on standby. And my co-captain, A.B. Raymond, says, something's going on with your selfish. I think something's chasing it. And he activated the camera. And three seconds later, here comes a mako with the selfish crossways in his mouth. I mean, sad for the selfish, but what great footage. Oh, my gosh. So how do we rectify this problem? Is there a way? It's a pendulum. We've all seen pendulums. And, and, and I don't want to leave the problem first because... I tarpon fished extensively from the late 60s to today. Up until 2008, I never even considered a shark problem with my tarpon. I never lost a tarpon to a shark before 2008. And how many do you lose on an annual now basis? Now we've completely changed our approach to tarp fishing. Now our tarpon fishing thought process is if you want to catch a tarpon, we're going to go out, we're going to hook a tarpon, we're going to fight it on 20-pound tackle. And as soon as you've seen it clearly and we can break off the leader, we're going to let it go. So we used to fight every one of them. To the boat. Until they could reach down, hold them by the lower jaw, and we would take a picture of them. Right. Now it's as soon as we can release them, we're going to release them. Because if we don't. They're going to die. A shark's going to eat them. They'll get bit. And, and for that matter, we may not be able to catch them before a shark eats them. I mean, and how crazy is it 
when a, sh a bull shark bites the tail off of your tarpon, and by the time, you, and the mate doesn't even give you a chance to take a picture, which I chewed him out for. He knows it wasn't a co-captain, it was a mate. He unhooks the half a tarpon and lets it go before I even get to take a picture of it. And before it drifts from me to you, a hammerhead eats the rest of it. It's crazy. So it's just, and snook, bottom fishing, forget about it. There's so many days that we just pack it and we don't bottom fish because we know every fish we hook is going to be eaten by a shark. You know, in the Florida Keys, in the lower part down by Key West, now all the uh, the guides association are trying to ban a certain time of the year off, I think it's called the West Reef or something down there, where all the permits spawn. Yeah. Because the commercial fishermen are out there with their charters, and they're trying to catch a bunch of permit, but every permit's getting shark bit. So now they're trying to, like that certain time of the year, say, look, guys, let's just leave this reef alone uh, because we're going to kill a bunch of permits. Well, we have the same thing on the uh, Dr. Millie uh, off of the Dade, Broward, I mean, Dade, Dade Monroe County border, practically. Great spot for a permit. But this past year, we run down there for a guy who wants to permit fish specifically. And it's a flat, calm day. And my co-captains stand up on the bottom. The anglers are in their 70s. So they're, stand, they're standing behind him down in the cockpit. But he's standing up on the bow. And he's saying, okay, 150 feet this way. And I edge up that way. And he throws a crab in front of the school of permit. And as soon as the line comes tight on the permit, the bull shark comes rushing in to eat the permit. And we did that two or three times. And I said, that's it. We're out of here. We're not doing this anymore. It was. I mean, the bull, the, there's, there's 100 permit and there's a, half a dozen bull sharks. 50 feet behind them. And as soon as a permit tenses, the bull shark attacks him. That's crazy. And and like you say, the the worst criminal there is is the guy that comes back to the dock and he says, man, I had to hook 10 bottom fish before I landed one. The sharks kept eating them. Well, Duh. that's 10 groupers you killed to get one for dinner. You exceeded your limit by nine or ten. The shark problem, you ask, what do we do about the shark problem? We encourage our, our uh, powers that be to loosen up the restraints on shark harvest. Uh, one guy wants to have a shark tournament. The only shark you're eligible to bring back to the dock is a bull shark, which is not protected. But he's in, he wants to have it where you harvest your bull sharks and the scientific community be there to study the bull sharks and hopefully you'll find somebody that will eat the bull sharks and then all other sharks will be tagged and released. And he's getting so much resistance right. from the people who... The greenies. Well, they're they not... Yeah, I, I understand. They, they, they're, they're very conscientious people that don't understand... The balance of nature. Let me ask you: Have you ever felt, have you ever felt badly about killing a fish? Not since I was about five years old. <laughs> I mean, every day since. I, I mean, was look. Five I mean, old. sometimes I wonder. I mean, when we, my, you know, Nikki and I, we love to bow hunt for elk. When we harp, when we get an elk, it's like, you know, you you pay homage, you know, to the animal, and, and you, you say thank you, Lord, you know. But I kind of wonder if there may be a difference because it's a mammal versus a fish. No, there's no difference. 
When I was a little kid and, and I would put a bluegill on a bucket and it would die, I was devastated. I worked on the Newport Pier as the bait man when I was 13, 14 years old. And I have to admit that uh, I might have to go to the psychiatrist for this, but I would keep pilchards in this bait tank to sell. And I would frequently put one blue, big blue runner in there. And then I had a long skinny knife and I would stab the blue runner <laughs> until he died. <laughs> Every time he went by, I'd harpoon him. And then when he died, I'd dissect him to see why he died. You know, whether I had his internal organs. Or, right. And then I would say, you know, that was a terrible thing I did that poor blue runner. I feel bad about you're it. You're a sick dude. But, you ever been to confession? <laughs> <laughs> but I have good news for you. Um... I caught a white marlin that may very well have been the all-tackle world's record. And we fought it for five hours. And my angler on what On what pound test? 20-pound spin and tackle. Five hours. And, and my angler, who was a weightlifter, called me up the next day. And he says, I can't walk. I says, what do you mean I can't walk? He says, I had my toes curled so long that all of my toes are black from lack of circulation. Almost like he had frostbite. From from the intensity of the fight. And we got the white marlin up to the boat and we revived it and we sent it on its way. And uh, sometimes you know, I wonder, it's like I see these animals with such great fortitude and will, and they're thrashing and they're just struggling and fighting. And you know, they have, you know, some fish, you know, they, they're quite passive and others are just like, that's, that's a, an animal that has great spirit. And I think to myself, do you ever feel bad about killing stuff like this? Because I don't harvest fish. And I would just want to, like a goggle eye. You put a goggle eye on, he's alive, and it's like, okay, go catch me something. And you know he's sending him into, um, you well, know. Well, I'm like, worse than that. Like, I'm worse than that. Every morning I come, to, every night before I'm going fishing, every, if I'm going fishing tomorrow, I contact Frank the Bait Man on the Ashley at Government Cut today and I tell him I'm going sword fishing tomorrow. So if he catches a squid, I want that. And I want a few dead ballyhoo. And I need just a few pilchers in case we find a school of dolphin. But I always buy $40 worth of pilchards. Sometimes they're an inch long and they're great if we get into Spanish mackerel. Sometimes they're five inches long and they're great selfish bait. But $40 worth of pilchards, when you buy them every day, is a lot of pilchards. But the highlight of my day is when I get back to the dock in You're the afternoon. You're feeding them to the tarpon. I don't feed them to the tarpon, but my customers take this lively little fish. A happy, beautiful, and healthy fish. right thing. into the mouth of a 100-pound tarpon. It's the Coliseum again. It's, here you're Relive. free. <laughs> well, that didn't work very good. I guess you'll have to swim fast. I'm going to tell you a funny story because Nikki and I have realized that a goggle eye is safer in our boat because we suck so bad at finding <laughs> fish that they're happy in our boat. We get them out there, you know. Um, we used to go offshore fishing. We get seasick. So we buy, uh, I got a twin V, learn how to fly kites, dunked a few kites. But we get, the, we get out there and we get a goggle eye out there, get two out there, and we end up catching a sailfish or two at, at one point. But we always got so seasick. It's like we're out there for an hour. And I'd look at him and he'd look at me and we're trying to assess who's getting sick first, right? So we're out there. We bought a dozen goggle eye. We put one out 
and it's not out there 15 minutes. I look at him and he looks at me and now he's throwing up. <laughs> so now we go back to the dock and we release 11 goggle eyes at the dock, you know? So the next time we go out, we buy like three. <laughs> so and, we, and then the kingfish bite all of them in half in the first five minutes. Yeah, and then it's like, let's just go golfing. Sell this <laughs> boat, was stick with the flat stuff. Well, well, that's an interesting, you talk about that. My co-captain, A.B. Raymond, he, uh, he was lucky enough to... Uh, be given a Hogue flat skiff. He and his buddy were, here, you guys use this. I want to keep it around, but I'm not using it, and it needs to be used. So this guy gave the two boys this boat to do whatever they want with. So my co-captain, A.B. Raymond, is pretty much taking over the boat, and he's freshwater fishing charters now on Mondays. He, he works for me uh, Tuesday through Saturday, Sundays are devoted to his wife, and Mondays are devoted to his own sanity. So now he goes freshwater fishing every Monday. And, and he's a tall kid, and he ran all through high school. So he beat his knees up pretty bad, and, he, and he's got an issue with his back. So he goes on this Hogue Flats boat in the canals of Dade County, and there's no waves and there's no boat wakes. He's happy. <laughs> and, and, and the variety he catches anymore in Dade County, Dade County freshwater fishing ain't like going bass fishing. He catches, like the other day, he caught a 14-pound uh, tarpon, 11-pound snook, another snook, a uh, dozen peacock bass, uh, three of those uh, clown knife fish. I mean, just... It's prolific. All different species of... Comfortable uh, and fun. I heard Easy. a great one from Alan Zaremba. Alan Zaremba is a great inshore fisherman. And somebody asked him about uh, killing uh, invasive species. He says, who are you trying to kid? We're not Indians, and that canal was built by a man, so it's an invasive species. I'm an invasive species. Why would I kill that clown knife fish or that snakehead or that tilapia or anything else? It's the world we live in today. It's just yeah. like Miami. We've got Cubans and Russians and Germans and English and uh, Colombians. And <coughs> we're such a melting pot right. of fishing and population. Right. It just makes the world a better place. Let's go back to um, Bud Marys in the Stanzix. You mentioned yeah. them and the the invention of daytime sword fishing. Uh, I mean, that was like revolutionary because everything was before it, 18 feet, 1,800 feet of water in the middle of the night, right? Yeah. But is it a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing, I would think. think. I don't know. I don't know. Let's you tell turn me, it you, around. But let's, you tell me. So what was the well, difference? How well, did, let's turn it around. Right? We went nighttime sword fishing. We rigged up predominantly 50-pound tackles, once in a while 80-pound tackle, once in a while 20 or 30-pound tackle, and we fished 8-pound tackle. And we caught swordfish, stand-up, harnesses, and the baits were 100 to 300 feet down. Because they're in shallower water at night, right? No, they're in the same depth of water, but they come to the surface. Okay. And we were light tackle sport fishing. I'm going sword fishing tomorrow. On my boat, I'll have three electric reels. Yeah. My weights will be 10 to 12 pounds. Wow. I'll be fishing with 2,000 to 3,000 feet of line out. 
and a 500-pound swordfish eats my bait, and the rod tip goes, Think, did you see that? Yeah. I, I sit at the helm, and my co-captain, A.B., stands at the butt of the rod. Watching a rod tip all day. And, and No, but we've got a bite. We know we've had a bite because one of us noticed it, or we might even both notice it. But we, he'll be teasing the fish. He'll be whining on the bait and stopping. And every time he stops the rod tip, I, can't, I have to ask him, did he get hit again? Because sometimes I can't even see it from my perspective as he can. And that's a bite. Unbelievable. How do, you, how do you get them? When they commit suicide, you get them. When they garbage the bait. They eventually get the line wrapped around their nose and hooks, hooks them in the side of the face. Or they get the bait inside the mouth and they get hooked in the corner. That sounds pretty boring to me. It's boring as hell. I'd so be get, seasick in the first it's, 10 oh, you minutes. Oh, would, you, you wouldn't even get to, you wouldn't even get to the fishing I wouldn't get the. I wouldn't be able to get 3,000 uh, feet of line out. You wouldn't be able to get to the 3,000 feet of water. Right. But but the bottom line is is that no matter whether you're the world's greatest angler or the world's worst angler. It's all the same. When the swordfish hooks himself, he's got whether It's interesting. I thought it was always the sinker. But whether we use it IGFA legal with a release clip with a, using a downrigger system and that swordfish has no sinker on it, he comes all the way to the surface. If he's got 12 pounds of lead, we know why he's coming to the surface because you probably know this from all the fishing you've done. You're pull, the sinker's pulling down, therefore the swordfish is going to swim up. Against if the weight. If I'm pulling up, the swordfish is going to swim down. Right. So when a swordfish eats a bait down there, he's actually only got 18, he's only at 1,800 feet of water. But your line is way off the bow of the boat now because of the drift from the current. That's why you got 3,000 right. feet of line. But at any rate, he feels the sinker pulling down. So he swims to the top. So whether you're sport fishing or electric reel fishing, you're winding up to the sinker. There's no fighting the fish. All you're doing is winding up slack line. And then you unclip the lead, and then you can fight the fish if he's got any energy left. But you hook a 100-pounder after he has swam up from 1,800 feet, pulling 12 pounds of lead, he's shot out already. So that's not sport fishing. Right. So, so yeah, daytime fishing is great. We catch much bigger fish. But, but it's, it's all that you're, you're disconnected. It's high concentration. The... the it's so pathetic. It ha we have, I avoided it at all costs. I, I scare my co-captain because every few minutes I'll tell my anglers, turn the switch, move your bait a little bit, see if you can inspire a bite. And if my angler has any knowledge whatsoever, I'll tell the customer to drop the 10-pound or 12-pound sinker back to the bottom. It makes A.B. cringe because if he misses and he overdrops, the bottom down there is like a bunch of lions dying to eat your sinkers and hooks. And if you hang the bottom, it's very hard to break the line, and, oh. and you lost $400. Oh. So I'll have the customers drop back to the bottom. It just scares A.B. to death because he knows what happens if you hang the bottom. But if you don't let them drop back to the bottom, why are they even there? I get stories from people that say, yeah, I chartered a boat to go sword fishing in the daytime. And the captain ran the boat out. The mate put the bait down. We drifted along for a couple hours. They told me, just sit up there in the beanbag. We'll call you when you, when you got a fish. 
And then they said, hey, you've got a fish on. No, stay there in the beanbag. The electric reels got it under control. With the level, level wind, automatic stop, and it does it all itself. And then they bring the fish all the way up the electric reel. They hit it with a harpoon. They pull it in the boat. You want a picture with the fish you just caught? Yeah, that's disgusting. That's like you going fly fishing and watching uh, yeah. your guide stand up on the bow, or, or run to the spot, stake up the boat, stand up on the bow. Here comes the tarp, and he throws him a fly, he hooks the tarp, and he fights the tarp, and he brings it in. He lip gaps it, and he lifts it up on his Andy, you want to get a picture of the tarp he just caught? <laughs> that's insane. You've got to have the people. We have a strict rule on our boat. When we take the sinker off, we take the motor off of our reel. Right. So now you've if, got to, if it's going to get from there to here, you're going to do it. You're going to catch it. Do you kill all your sword, no your sword fish? You no let, let You let oh a lot of them God. go. Uh, Which ones do you kill? Who decides that? Mostly the customers. Yes, I want one. So if it's eat. a small one, it's okay to it, it take doesn't it matter. Eat. It doesn't matter what size Would it they is. take a 500-pound first. Beat? I. You know what? I killed one with Eric Leach, president of the IGFA. And Herb Ratner at one time had more world's records than anybody. We were world record sword fishing, fly fishing, but we put out three baits, yeah, three baits, and then Herb Ratner was fly fishing. And we hooked the swordfish on one of the natural baits. And Herb fought it for almost four hours. And, and he was 63 years old, and he started off for the first hour with no harness, just a belt. And after four hours, he says, I can't hold the rod anymore. Mike Leach wound the fish up to the boat in 20 minutes. Here's the biggest swordfish I've ever seen in the water, every bit of 600 pounds. Wow. We put the tag in it, and we cut it loose. Good for you. I've regretted it ever since. And the why? The odds are that a 600-pound swordfish, after a five-hour fight... Is going to die. It's probably going to die. And and to at the time, nobody had caught a 600-pound sword. But, but, but he's got a chance to make it if he's in the water well, swimming away. Well, that's the whole thing. And he was swimming away. Right. And if he, so you don't know. If she spawned one more time, we put millions of swordfish right. eggs back in the water. So, so you got to feel good about that. The bouncer smith is an advocate for throwing back everything you can. But the realistic bouncer says, God, the, the fame and glory we could have had from that fish, and it was at the end of its lifespan. Probably should have kept we it. We should have but, nuked it. <laughs> but but I'm sure glad I, I didn't kill it. Yeah, no, that's good. And, and people look at me, you didn't kill it. And and by the same token, I had a kid one day from South, from West Africa, fishing in the daytime, rod jerks on the bottom, we take the motor off, and he fights the fish from, from the bottom all the way up. Wow. 400-pounder, put it in the boat. He wanted to keep it. You up for another one? He says, yeah, I think I can do one more. Ran back, dropped the bait again, immediately got another bite. An exact twin to the first fish. As soon as we got it close to the boat, we got a tag in it, and we turned it loose. Fil still full of energy, we... we my mate took a triple wrap on it and pulled the hook out of it, still fighting like crazy. And and to know that that fish is still there is so gratifying. I've got pictures in my album of 
two and three hundred pounds of tagging released. We, the the uh, dolphin research program talks about the fish you want to tag are these uh, undersized fish and just barely legal and stuff like that. We tag thirty and forty pounders. I run a very unique charter boat business. You know, you go to Bud and Mary's, you you talk to 10 flats fishermen, and some of them won't even harvest a sea trout. And almost every one of them is a devoted catch and release guy with a couple fish for dinner. You talk to 10 charter boat captains, the big boats, and, yeah, I'm going to sell them to this resident or that fish market. They're going to sell everything they can get a hold of. Is that something that you would like to have change? No, no. With the offshore guys? No, you can't. For, and I'll explain to you. But I'm going to brag first. The first year they had saltwater product licenses in Florida, I bought a saltwater product license. I never renewed it. On my charter boat, we never sell any fish. Andy, you're our charter for today. How many fish you want to keep? Oh, I'd like to have four dolphin. Okay. I'd like to have one. Abe would like to have one. So we're going to kick six, kill six dolphin. doesn't matter if they're 40-pounders, 20-pounders, or two-pounders. The rest of the dolphin we catch, we're going to tag them if, if possible, and we're going to let them go otherwise in as good health as possible. How many kingfish you want? I don't want any kingfish. Okay, well, we're not going to harvest any kingfish today. Oh, you caught a black grouper at South season. We're going to tell you to let it go. Oh, you, you're only allowed to have one grouper apiece. No, I can't have a grouper. Abe, you can't have a grouper. So all of our groupers, over one per person, are tagged and released. But nothing is harvested to sell. And, and you should see the looks I get when I tell people that I tagged and released a 50-pound wahoo. I mean, I think I've got to be nuts. But That's I'm, a lot of income over the course of a year. It, for those guys, about over fifty years. Yeah, but you're, but, but, but you, but you ethically feel bad about that. I, you asked me if I feel bad about killing fish. No, about about no, not you, killing more. But you asked me about earlier about do I feel bad about killing a fish? Right. I feel bad about killing almost every fish that I kill or don't kill. I feel bad about the ones I kill. I've, you know. All of our fisheries are overfished. And if, if I'm going to tell you that you can only keep 10, then I have to be better than you in limiting my own harvest. Right, right, right. And, and you asked me a second ago about charter boats. Let's take Jimmy David as an example. He's got, a, his son is now a world-class big game crew member. His daughter is a world-class mate. His little boy, I don't know what his future is. He's still too little. His wife was a world-class tournament angler, and, and then she works with him on occasion. But they have a charter boat at Key Biscayne. He fishes circles about around everybody. He starts earlier than everybody, and he quits later than everybody. And... He's got the eyes of a frigate bird, and he catches more fish than anybody. But when he gets back to the dock, here's your one gallon of boneless, skinless fillets. The rest are mine. And so he makes as much money off the, the fish he's selling as he did the charter. 
goes to Hawaii for two months and charters boats in Hawaii. I don't know what does he do. Sold fish all year. And, and, and It's hard to deny people that opportunity to make money. Very true. And, 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 and look at it from the customer's point of perspective. Yeah, the guy only got one bag, one, one gallon bag of boneless skins fillets. And I don't know exactly how it works. I don't know whether that's per household or per charter, and it's none of my business. It's not my ballywick. I don't have anything to do with it. But I do know that if he knows that he's going to get a dollar a pound bonus for everything he catches. We'll just use that as a number. Right. Because we'll say that the fish is worth $5 a pound, but you're going to end up with four pounds and he's going to end up with one pound. But the bottom line is, is that he's going to make money on every fish he catches. And, and he's a very aggressive guy. He's going to keep working hard to catch you fish. Because he gets to sell them. You're paying him for the privilege of going fishing. Mm-hmm. And he's going to do everything in his power to catch you every fish he can so that you can go home with the memories, the pictures, and a gallon of boneless skins filet will feed 10 people. And his drive is the dollar. For sure. And your drive was for the, a day on the water and a fish dinner. What would happen if you think the angler got on his boat and said, I don't want to catch any fish today. I want to catch them and maybe take one home. But he, and, and but and, and you mean and doesn't want to kill any doesn't fish. want to kill any and he tells the captain I don't want you taking any and selling them or killing these fish because I'm paying for you to take me fishing. Well, we're better off today than in some world third world countries. But in in his case, he'd probably go sail fishing all day, and he'd do damn good. No, he'd say that. I'm not taking you fishing. I get no, this no, guy. he's a he's a. World-class sail fisherman, too, and he doesn't sell any sailfish. Let's go back to Bud and Mary's real quick because we're talking about catch and release here. What was the situation down there where a captain was talking about taxidermies and, and mounts and commissions? I mean, that, that, that actually turned a light on for you. We, we talked about this the other day, and it's really pathetic that I still can't remember the guy's name. But uh, I was at Bud and Mary's, and there was a lot of opportunities to mount tarpon. <clears throat> and the owner of Fluger Taxidermy at the time came to Bud and Mary's and he says, look, you guys make $100 in commission every time you mount a tarpon. If you do a release mount where you don't kill the tarpon, and the customer has a fiberglass reproduction made, I'll give you an extra $50 commission. Stop killing tarpon for taxidermy because we've gone from processing the tarpon and stuffing the tarpon and having the scales fall off three years later to just making fiberglass tarpon. Allowing the fish to swim away. Catch and release the fish and we'll give the person a 3D piece of art that replicates their fish perfectly, will last their lifetime, and they can have their cake and eat it too because they can come back 10 years from now and catch the same tarpon, 20 years from now and catch the same tarpon. 
and so on and so forth. But I think too, in some areas still here in like Florida, a lot of these guys are catching fish and getting commissions for fish to be mounted. If you're a car salesman, you make a commission. Yeah. If you're a furniture salesman, you make a commission. So much of the world is commission. If you're a stockbroker, you get a commission. Right. If you're a snow skier, you don't get. Well, you do get a commission. You get a share of the money. But you know what? It would get. be. You know, what would be great though is if the taxidermists were all on board with this, the with tax- all the cam and, and all the captains, and the taxidermist, you know, gets a rebound towards or gives a rebound towards that captain to the, inspire these guys to catch and release their fish. The taxidermists today do not want you to kill a single fish. They want all release mounts. If you kill a fish, they may have a situation with your marina where they have to send a truck down and a driver to pick up your fish and haul it off someplace. But as far as I know, they don't even do that anymore. There's no skin mounts. I think everything goes into no, a dumpster. No, no, that's they, not, no, not hauling it back to the taxidermist. No, shop. it goes into a dumpster. There, and they there, send a- everything that you do today is a phenomenal three-dimensional piece of art right. that replicates in every detail the fish that you caught. And you can go back and catch it again. It's awesome. just Just this week. We had an amberjack recapture. We tagged it four years ago. Oh, how awesome. We estimated it at under 50 pounds. It was four years later, it was said to weigh 100 pounds. That's awesome. And, and you've been around long enough that you've heard all these scientists. You take a, you take a uh, five-pound dolphin. It's been spawning for for three months already. But when a five-pound dolphin spawns, it squirts out 100,000 eggs. A 20-pound dolphin, when she spawns, she squirts out 10 million eggs. And she spawns all year round. That's so much life given back to the ocean. So that when you say, yeah, we got enough dolphin for dinner, let's turn that big dolphin loose. You're putting so much potential into the future. Yeah. Oh, you asked about swordfish before. Swordfish, which one's the harvest is a big question. They say don't harvest the little ones. You always got to let a fish have one spawning season. I'm the complete opposite. If I kill a 60-pound swordfish, it yields 30 or 40 dinners. Nobody needs more than 30 or 40 dinners. And that fish hasn't lived long enough to spawn. And it might have to be another year before it does spawn. And it's got to dodge recreational fishermen, longline fishermen, buoy gear fishermen, mako sharks, and so on and so forth. If I kill a 300-pound swordfish, she's already spawned for six years or five years. And she's in prime spawning stage now. So if I let her go, she's already producing optimum yield of eggs. For sure. And she's going to continue to yield. However long she lives, she's going to continue to yield optimum supplies of eggs until she reaches old age. 
So letting her go is much more valuable. For sure. Than letting, than letting go of a swordfish that hasn't had a chance to spawn yet. If you could go anywhere in the world to fish, where would you go other than what you see here right now? My first answer is Panama. Why? Blue marlin, black marlin, roosterfish, gubera snappers, uh, wahoo, a plethora of a variety of great fish. My second answer, and it might be my first answer I really searched, would be Western Australia. Not Eastern Australia with the giant black marlin and stuff, but uh, Western, Northwestern Australia. Uh, Little baby black marlin, baby blue marlin, sailfish, and a plethora of other species. And then, <laughs> this is a joke that I tell every day anymore, but I might be inspired to go to one of these places with all the giant GTs. Oh, yeah, I've caught but, those. But, Andy, you've caught them? Yeah. Did you know we have golden trevallies right here? I, I didn't know well, that. Well, you don't call them golden trevallies. You like, maybe like most people do, oh, it's just the Jack Crevel. Oh, I love Jack Crevel's fishing. But you know how yes. many people cuss Jack oh, Crevel's? I love them. And they should be called golden trevallies. Oh, my They'd God. They'd be so popular. They are. They are just like them. It's amazing the perspective of fish. You know what? You're absolutely correct there because we have some monster fish up by Jupiter area yeah. on a west wind, and it's calm out there. You look out, and you see a half acre of, of shimmering, you know, yellow gold. gold. Yes. yes. Um, and... and Throw a popper or a zerospook with no hooks. Well, I hate that. And I, get them boiling well, towards you, know, you. But you know what's interesting? You cannot throw a fly to the really big fish far enough to tease them far enough and, and, and strip it far enough to get the bite. So the best way is the, is the bait and switch. Throw yeah. it with a spinning rod, that plug you're hookless talking about, hookless. You'll bring a thousand fish to the bow of your boat. Sure. It's unbelievable. And I use them, I hate to say it, for shark bait. I go catch a couple of those in Fulham and catch the spinner sharks. You know, you fish up the ladders, you know. Yeah. But I, I too, I am a huge fan of Big Jack Crevel. But, but in de defense of what you do, you know why there's an acre of Jack Crevels there? Because they were created to feed the sharks and the Goliath groupers. Is that just... And get offshore and maybe eat a feed of blue marlin once in a while. Well, I just think that's the nature of nature. Well, that's yeah. the whole thing. Right. Uh, we both know that a pilchard is a forage fish. Right. A dolphin's a forage fish. A skipjack tuna's a forage fish. So <laughs> blue mar I've seen sailfish inside white marlin. I've seen white marlin inside of blue marlin. No kidding. So... Everything in the ocean no is forged to getting, somebody. It's getting bit. Yeah. But, uh, no, I mean, killing a jacket. Barracudas are in big trouble in South Florida. The population is severely depleted. And the Florida Marine Patrol now has uh, bag limits and size limits for barracudas to, only in South Florida to alleviate the situation. But if you were going on the flats and you wanted to fish for a shark, there's nothing better than hanging a barracuda carcass off the side for, of the boat. For sure. 
But Barracuda shows such short supply, we hate to kill one. You mentioned earlier about Bud and Mary's and, uh, and the Stancic family. To me, it's Bud and Mary's with Jack and, uh, was it Dorothy Kurtz? Or was it Mary Kurtz? It was Dorothy Kurtz, wasn't it? I don't know. Jack Kurtz owned Bud and Mary's for years. Those were the years I was there. And uh, God, the people that were there. Uh, Jimmy Albright was there. Cecil Keith. Um, I can't even imagine how awesome it was. I mean, it's kind of interesting to see where we are today. And I was speaking um, recently about how these are the good old days. And the fact that we're, we can't go back and, and see better habitat, it's not going to get, I don't think it's going to get better, personally. It may never get worse. That's what I'm hoping for. But if you are, if you know what you're doing, and you're technical and you're smart, you can go out and catch a lot of great fish today. Oh, no doubt about the it. The lower keys have yeah. so many skiffs. Isla Mirada has so many skiffs. But the technology of fly design and what these fish want and how to feed these fish. Last year, Nikki and I, in the month of May, we hooked 118 tarpon and caught 47 on fly. Wow. That's a lot of fish for a fishery that's supposed to be really, really hard. You know, well, not well, as many fish. They're really smart. You, but you, if you work hard. You hook them and run them down with the boat, right? And it's only a three-minute fight, right? They're only in six feet of water. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds easy, right? Well, that's the way they catch sailfish. You ever, you ever wonder how they catch 300 striped stri uh, marlin in a day? Oh, God. <laughs> well, we, you know, we, you know, we may... Um, Luckily, we know how to pull hard, so I would say our average tarpon caught is between 10 and 20 minutes. Very rarely will it be over 30 minutes, but last year on one particular day, we caught 14 and hooked 28. That's a good day of fly fishing. Oh, that's phenomenal. You know what? But you bring to, together a point that's really important, and, and we don't know who's going to watch this podcast. There might be a guy that we're preaching to the choir. It might be a guy that's never put a line in the water. But I tell people over and over again, if they really want to be a fisherman, they have to take their favorite outfit, put a snap swivel on the end of it, and hook it in the middle of a chain link fence where the fence has got some give to it. And then never go past 90 degrees from the fence. But they have to know how hard they can pull without breaking their line. Right. I give you a, your fly rod. I can't give you my fly rod. I can't give you my knots or my tippet material or anything else and expect you to be as good. But if I give you your fly rod, and I've been tying your tippets for quite a while, and I've been tying your leaders on, so you know that my knots are as good as your knots, and I give you a tarp, and you know to within... I don't know what's much smaller than an ounce, but to within an ounce, how hard you're going to be able to pull without breaking your tippet? Well, here's the, here's the question. When a captain says pull harder, what does that mean to an angler? Usually they pull the rod back harder, right? Right, and which all is not right. All we're doing is just bending more of the tip. Trying There's to nothing. break the There's rod. There's no resistance. There's no right. resistance. So when I started fishing tournaments with Harry Spear, 
in the early days and we started catching a lot of fish, I knew I needed to learn how to fight fish better. And then Harry and I started to try to catch a world record tarpon on six pound test. So I'm thinking in my mind, okay, I want to be able to pull at least five pounds of drag or pressure, put five pounds of pressure on yeah. this fish. So what I did, I used to have, um, you know, all my ex-wives hang on to these scales, <laughs> you know, and I would, I would stand back and I'd pull and they'd read off the number about how much resistance I had. Two on, pounds. On, yeah, two, three five, pounds. Six. And so then I thought, you know what? To eliminate the need of somebody to hang on to a scale while I'm pulling on this fly rod, I thought, okay, for the tournaments, we're fishing 16-pound test. So I went and got a 12-pound barbell and I got a pulley from a marine store. And I put the butt section of my leader through the pulley and tied it to the 12-pound barbell. Now, when I pull back and that barbell comes off the floor, I know that what that magic number is, is 12. And if I can put 12 pounds of resistance on a tarpon, that gives me that little window of gray before he's yeah. gonna break off. But if I can put 12 pounds of pressure on that fish, that fish is gonna come to the boat very fast. So when I started fishing six pound world record fish, um, it was a five pound barbell. So now I have the feel on a nine weight fly rod what five pounds of, of pressure is. So when I hook that tarpon, he stops jumping, we get to the fat part of the fly line, now I can start pulling. We caught an 82 pound four ounce tarpon in 27 minutes in, on six pound test and missed uh, Stu App's record by four ounces. Wow. But unless you know how much you're pulling, there's so much gray you have no idea. And like you said, a chain link fence, but anything where you have some sort of a number and you have some sort of a feel about how to pull, because most people pull with their arms. Obviously, we need to learn how to pull with our legs. That's where the power is. Yeah. But you have to know the breaking point of your tackle. Right. You didn't want to break it because you'd have to tie a new knot. And that's, well, you can't a, see the line anymore to tie the knots right. if you're like me. But, but your idea with the, Barbell reminds me of one of my customers. I tell my people all the time, you got to learn to set your drags for the pound test that you're fishing. Right. And one of my customers goes to the tackle shop and there's a scale there to weigh the different weights. And he start, he picks up one pound leads and he weighs them until he finds one that's 16 ounces because because of impurities, they'll be anywhere from 13 to 16 ounces. So he finds a 16-ounce lead that's accurate, and then he finds an 8-ounce lead that's accurate, or he might want two, depending on the he's a light tackle fisherman. Right. But every time he gets on the boat, he takes the appropriate sinker, puts it on the hook, and he sets the drag until the sinker just lifts off the ground. That's what the drag set. It's, yeah, smart. And like you said... Well, see the, see, the difference in tarpon fishing here we're talking about offshore bait casting and spinning reels using the drag and fly casting. My, my, the drag of my fly reel is about four pounds. No, it's all in your fingers. Though. So I'm hanging on to my fly line. So, yeah. so as an angler, I need to know when to let go. Yep. You know, yep. so there's a little bit of a, of a difference. Well, there. very much difference. Yeah. But, but that's what you asked me what my favorite fish was. And, and it was tarpon hands down because you can psychologically beat a tarpon more than any fish I've ever met. Yeah. You know, you're pulling up, and he heads towards the surface, so you pull down. And you're pulling down the side of his body, so you're putting maximum pressure. You don't do a lot of offshore fishing because you get seasick. But do you know if you pull backwards on a deep forked tail like a sailfish or a dolphin, 
It makes them harder to, to, to control and to beat. And why? I don't know whether it's their breathing apparatus or what, but when you pull backwards on those fish, they panic more and they do crazy things. Pull them backwards on a tarp and you can roll him under and he's done. Right, Those right. fish, it just doesn't work. We always succeed with dolphin and selfish stuff better if we pull them forward and to the side. But you know what's interesting? I've always felt like, let's just say a Sherpa that's climbing in Nepal or climbing Everest, and they can carry 80 pounds in the back, but it's, it's going to be balanced. So in fighting fish, I always felt like if you can pull a little bit off angle, like that weight on the Sherpa, yeah. it's he's not going to be able to carry that weight very long. So I'm thinking with a fish, if you can pull to the side just a little bit, pull up, always change that angle, that weight yeah. is going to mess that fish up psychologically and also physic uh, the physicality aspect of it. No doubt about it. There's, it's what great, is great about fishing. And you know, you talk about tarpon. You've been tarpon fishing 30 years. You're trying to fool the same fish you fooled the first time you went tarpon fishing. Yeah. And that takes a lot of doing. I mean, They're when, smart when I was doing it, the fly racks were full of 120-pound 100 shock tippets. And what are you using now? 40. Down to 40. We catch a lot of fish. We caught 140, 150-pound fish this year with 40-pound shock. And the reason you can do it is because a lot of the flies that we're using are little 1-0 hooks and worm flies that are on the surface. So a lot of these fish will slide up and they sort of like bite the fly. They sip it. And a lot of the hooks get caught right in the upper lip. Whereas if you have a fly that might be a little bit deeper in the water column and they have that voracious bite and they turn yeah. and, the, and the hook gets a little bit deeper, you have all the abrasion and the wear yeah. and tear on the lip. So... I figure if it's if it's calm, clear water, that lighter uh, shock, you're gonna get more bites. No doubt. And with the, where the hooks are are, are sitting, sitting in their mouth, you're gonna be able to avoid that chafing. We only use 50 pound leaders for live bait tarpon fishing because we're using all circle hooks, so and every one of on our circle hook is hooked in the lip. So our leaders outside their mouth all the time. I can remember when we had the great Miami Beach Rod and Reel Club and to advance in your badges, you had to catch a tarpon on fly light, which is straight 12-pound 12. 12 tippet to the hook. And everybody had their hooks, their flies tied on long shank hooks so that the shank would stick out of the fish's mouth a little bit. To did that work? Oh, yeah, they did that all the time. What is the, uh, when you look at your career, what are you most proud of? Because there's been so much. My conservation awards and sharing my fishing knowledge. I do, I do at least six to ten tackle shop seminars a year. I speak at at least six to eight tackle uh, fishing clubs every year, if not a little bit more than that. I'm on the radio Saturday morning for 10 minutes twice every morning, and, and it's all what's biting and then how are we catching them? Uh, how do you rig for that? Uh, but I've always shared my knowledge, and I've always felt that if I give them too much knowledge, they won't be able to absorb it all. So I'll <laughs> catch a fish still, but... Uh, 
the conservation and the sharing of knowledge. Well, let me ask you this. It's a kind of an interesting question in the fact that we've got a friend. Um, he's in the fishing world, and he is up in Apalachicola area. And he says, I don't own the ocean or these spots, but I do own the intellectual property of that spot. And with that said, he feels like he can go to that spot, and if anybody's there, he can, he can actually bully them out of there. What do you think about intellectual property and that whole concept? It's right over my head. What is intellectual property? Let's just say you develop, you develop fishing in a certain spot, and it's your spot, and nobody else can fish there because you found that spot and you figured out how to catch those fish. Well, I can only compare that to, to two situations. Generally speaking, even if I showed you the spot, you beat me there, it's yours for today. I'll be back there tomorrow. You're only available. You can only fish on Sunday. I'm going to fish Monday through Saturday there. Though. And, and, and that's fine with me. I showed the guy where the spot was, and I see my crew members get upset about a guy in a spot that I showed him, and, and he's abusing it. He's there with his boat now. Yeah, and he's abusing it, and, but it's wrecked already anyway by other people. But at any rate, the other end of the spectrum is um, we'll say that there's six frequent tarpon guides bait fishing in Dade County. And we go to the corner of this controller here, and I drift by, and number two drifts by, number three drifts by, and number four drifts by, number five drifts by, number six drifts by, and now I'm all the way out here, so I come around and I drift by. And this works great. And some nights there's only me, some nights there's three of us, and some nights the sixth rotation is too many boats, and I'll go find someplace else to fish. But then we get a new kid on the block, and he wants to be a professional. And we all have 25 to 30 foot boats, and we all drift by and we take our turns. He's got an electric trolling motor. Parks right there. I'm gonna pull up and I'm gonna say, hey, listen, everybody's drifting by, you gotta drift by. The procedure, you just messed up the you, rotation. You, you, you took it from five guys or six guys having access to the spot to you owning the spot. Right. That ain't going to work. Right. What do you say to that person? We tell them, you got to drift like everybody else or go find someplace else to fish. In that calm of a voice? No. <laughs> Maybe the first time. <laughs> right. And then he cuts my fish off, and I'm not kind at all. There's another bouncer. <laughs> Is there anybody that's passed that you wish could see your success and where you are today, and who would that person be? Well, first one would be my dad. My dad and I as you've already been through, as every father goes through. So we're a senior in high school. Where are you gonna to go to college? I'm not going to college, Dad, I'm gonna be a fisherman. Now you gotta to go to college. Okay, well, make it easy on both of us. We'll go to Miami Dade Community College, and then I can fish half the day and go to school half the day. So I went semester, one semester. Dad, we're wasting your money and my time. I'm gonna be a fisherman. I don't need this college stuff. I'm going to be a fisherman. And he finally said, 
If you're going to be a fisherman, do a damn good job of it. And you started this podcast by telling me I've done a damn good job of it. And that's always been my number one inspiration. To wherever my dad is, to be proud of what I've done as a, as a man. And I know I'm proud of what I've done, so he has to be. And I got the same thing a generation later. My son was in high school, and he told his mother, he might even did a paper on it, but he said, I don't, maybe he even told me, I don't remember, but the bottom line was my son said, I'm not a fisherman, I'm a paleontologist. I just hope I can be as good a paleontologist as you are a fisherman in all aspects of what you do. So I got it from my dad and I got it from my son. So you couldn't ask for more than that. And above and beyond that, there's an endless list of people I owe it to all to. Uh, Randy Lacey, uh, Billy Ridgeway, uh, Sonny Esslinger, just one guy after another. That And uh, all that Mark Sosin's done for me. Mark Sosin did so much for me over the years. We made numerous TV shows together, did the Saltwater Seminar Series together, and and uh, just a lot of really good people. One thing about it, when you get into fishing, in almost all cases, you find the best parts of everybody that you meet. And uh, yeah, that's true. It's really an honor to be in that family of fishermen. Well, it's an honor to have you as a friend. Well, it's an honor to here too us. as well. Thanks, Bouncer. Thank you. Bouncer has been an inspiration for a long time. But what's impressive to me is how this gentle giant has remained successfully active, winning tournaments into his 70s, when at one time he didn't think he'd live past 30. If you'd like to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube.